Hey, it's Mark. Readers of MMNM may recall our coverage of the Man Therapy campaign, specifically last May's effort targeting New England fishermen. For those who may not be familiar with it, this 11-year-old public service campaign aimed at potentially suicidal men has utilized humor to promote conversations around men's mental health. Visitors to mantherapy.org are introduced to the fictional mustachioed therapist Rich Mahogany, who dishes out lines like, you can't fix your mental health with duct tape, and encourages users to take a 20-point head check. The campaign's content and resources are designed to break down stigma, improve health-seeking behavior in the target population, and reduce suicidal ideation. The national suicide rate is highest in working-age men, but research has validated man therapy's unconventional use of humor to address that grim statistic. The campaign has also spawned a spin-off firm, Grit Digital, which creates software behavioral health platforms for colleges, as well as a movement known as Moonshot for Mankind, a conference and online series designed to promote men's health. This week on the podcast, Jack O'Brien sits down with ad man Joe Conrad, founder and CEO of Cactus, the agency behind man therapy, for Conrad's take on why the creative approach has proven so effective, the national discourse that sparked about this serious issue, and what's next for the effort, which Conrad calls an eye-opener for using branding, creative, and tech to address mental health. And Lesh is here with a health policy update. Hi, Mark. Today, I'll give a rundown of new poll results from the Campaign for Sustainable Rx pricing that show increasingly bipartisan support from the public for legislation that reduces drug costs. And Jack, what three issues you got on tap for this week's healthcare social media segment? This week, we're talking about the ramifications of Kim Kardashian's body scan. Robert F. Kennedy Jr. and Vivek Ramaswamy make noise on the campaign trail and the conversations around eating disorders in light of TikTok's girl dinner trend. I'm Mark Iskowitz, Editor-at-Large, and welcome to the MMM Podcast, medical marketing media's show about healthcare marketing writ large. Hello and welcome to the MMM Podcast. My name is Jack O'Brien. I'm the digital editor at MMM. I'm pleased to be joined today by a special guest, Joe Conrad, the CEO and founder of Cactus Agency. Joe, how are you doing today? Doing great, Jack. Thanks for having me. I appreciate you making time to come on the show to talk about what's been a really important and I would say kind of emerging topic in the past few years around healthcare, around men's mental health and kind of the stigmatization aspect. And I have a number of specific questions about the campaigns and the different efforts that you've worked on. But on a base level, why has this been such an important initiative and topic for you and your agency to work on? Well, our eyes were really open to the issue and the epidemic that this men's mental health crisis had kind of turned into um, when in 2010 um, I was meeting with somebody who works in suicide prevention and he was telling me about um, the number of men, male suicides, working age men, 25 to 54 that happen each year in this country. Um, you know, seven out of 10 suicides are from this population. And, you know, we had, we looked around and we're out, we were very intrigued by the public health world. And if anybody had ever done a campaign or an effort targeting specifically working age men, and we found very, very little, uh, not in the U.S. And we looked around the world and we found, uh, again, uh, very little that had been focused on this very important population. So that was kind of our first eye opening um, where we became aware of the issue and also just the lack of anybody doing anything interesting or creative in the space to address it. And I want to touch on the creative aspect there because we've written about a few of your campaigns as it relates to the man therapy 
uh, campaign initiative in MM&M. We've had the firefighter one. I remember there was the one involving New England uh, fishermen. How did those all come about? Because again, you're kind of dealing with something where it's people may not necessarily be as open to talking about it, but these are the communities that you're trying to reach in a very you know effective way. Yeah, I think everything about our man therapy campaign and the experiences and ad agency in developing and launching that campaign uh, has been uh, just incredible and very non-traditional in as much that we don't really have a client. We created the campaign because we saw a need in the market and our agency at Cactus took it on as a passion project. And so um, when we launched in 2012, um, we really, you know, used our best practices of, of really great strategic insights, um, a great creative concept. We decided to use humor to address a very dark subject and and get guys to kind of lean in and, and break down, you know, any barriers or some of the stigma and get them to kind of trust the campaign and think, oh, this is interesting. This is different. This looks like something I can relate to. Maybe I should check it out. So we launched Man Therapy. Um, the hub of the campaign was Man Therapy. Dot org, the website where the fictional therapist, Dr. Rich Mahogany, was there to greet you and, um, you know, dispense a 20 point head inspection, give you some advice, point you around on the site. And it really it really hit a hit a chord, I think, and resonated um, with people. The New York Times wrote a feature article about it. It quickly spread to this cult following because it, it was taking such an interesting approach. Um, to a very dark topic. And then, you know, also we didn't cut any corners when it came to the brand and the creative uh, quality of the production quality, the, the way the website was built and the interactive experience that we created. So we, we really tapped into something that I think uh, really resonated. And it was an eye opener for us on really the power of using creativity and technology to address behavioral health issues. And can you talk about that humor aspect? Because like I said, both of the campaigns that we've covered in the past year or so really lean into that whole, like, this is obviously a very heavy subject. We want to talk to you about something that's meaningful, but we're not trying to come from a place that's just so, I guess you could say overwrought with concern. We really want to meet you on the level. Can you talk about that? Because I feel like that really goes into these efforts that go towards, you know, breaking down stigmas and really kind of opening a more transparent conversation. Yeah. Yeah. I think, you know, it works for a number of reasons. I think one is um, men, but also not just men, but also in the first responder community, um, humor and, you know, giving each other a hard time. You know, we would say guys would say breaking each other's balls, but, you know, they also have this camaraderie with, with, with female firefighters or first responders, law enforcement. And so um, we, we knew the humor kind of cut across all that. And oftentimes uh, people will use humor to deflect a serious topic. Uh, to kind of not uh, focus on that and deflect it to a different uh, and use it to kind of let some air out of the situation. So we, we really use that same strategy of, you know, let's, let's really be funny. Let's, let's create this character that you didn't really know if he was real or not. And um, we knew that we wanted to talk about mental health in much different terms and make it relatable and approachable and accessible and really let guys know that therapy comes in many forms and taking care of your mental health is the manliest thing you can do. Um, and so we leaned into that, that manly thing uh, and it really paid off. And I'm kind of curious too, you talk about it not necessarily being for one client per se, but obviously, you know, you talk about the widespread media coverage beyond, you know, the trade publications like MM&M into the New York Times. What has the feedback been like from the target audience you're trying to reach these men that maybe have these mental health issues that they haven't addressed before? What has that been like? 
It's been an incredible experience. Um, you know, we launched the campaign uh, in 2012, so just 11 years ago this July. And, you know, we have a lot of data from the website, 2 million visits, over 500,000 men have completed the head inspection, 50,000 men have clicked on the crisis line. Um, we can see a lot of uh, what they're doing and asking about and searching for on the sites. We have a lot of data. Then we've gotten, you know, dozens and dozens of anecdotal stories from men and their loved ones talking about how that website really helped them and they appreciated it. How did they become a part of it? Um, really hundreds and hundreds over the years of, of people who kind of have raised their hand and expressed some feedback or wanted to be a part of it. And then um, we just completed it. Uh, the CDC sponsored a $1.2 million six-year clinical study of man therapy in the state of Michigan. And it just wrapped up um, about two years ago and we had to wait. It was just recently published in November. But what that study found of talking up to 600 men and following them um, after their experience with the website and then also following them long-term is the three goals that we set out for the campaign um, were clearly being met. We were breaking down the stigma and, and making it more approachable. We were improving help-seeking behavior in working-age men. And most importantly, we were reducing suicidal ideation after someone experienced our site and our screening tools. So, you know, we have clear evidence that not only is it a, a neat idea, but we, we know that it works and that's helped uh, fuel its growth and, and kind of sustainability uh, across the U.S. And I have to imagine that's so much more validating. I talk to a lot of leaders all the time and they'll talk about, you know, we got this many impressions or we made, you know, this many eyeballs. But when you're able to say like, oh, we made an impact in terms of cutting down on suicidal ideation or the amount of people to actually go and talk to a therapist or, you know, take the steps to address their mental health, that must be very validating as a leader. It absolutely is. Um, you know, we want to be effective. We want to constantly learn, you know, where we're succeeding or following short so we can improve and and continually optimize. And we've had a lot of people say, yeah, this is a neat campaign, but is it really reducing suicide? And suicide is such a complex issue and the numbers are really hard to track. You know, there's so many different campaigns and, and uh, you know, the issues may be getting worse and maybe a lot of the public education campaigns are working, but it's just, it's actually, the numbers would be much higher. So it's really hard to, to say, but when you look at like our intervention targeted at men and then, you know, doing that clinical research study, we know that in that microcosm of 600 men, it is effective. So that gives us confidence to, to really go out and try to spread uh, the campaign and, and get it into the hands of as many men as possible. I had one more question on man therapy before we kind of pivot the conversation a little bit. And it kind of has to do with what you talk about, the complexity of the mental health crisis the nation has undergone. Obviously, that was apparent uh, over a decade ago when you launched man therapy. But in that time, we've had a three year pandemic that no one had seen coming. And obviously, that's had its own impact on mental health in this country. How did that impact the initiative and maybe kind of refactoring how you approach or how you get this in front of the hands of different people, given that that fundamentally changed how the world operates? Yeah, that's a really insightful question. Uh, you know, when we launched in 2012, there, I think the stigma around men's mental health was much greater than it is today. I think we've come a long way. I don't think we've reached a tipping point with it, but we've been one of those forces trying to push forward and get that tipping point to happen sooner where, you know, mental health is seen on the same level as physical health. And a guy would think about taking care of, you know, uh, a, a mental health challenge is just like a broken arm. 
And so that's come a long way. I think we're a lot more open to it. And I think the pandemic worsened and heightened the crisis, the mental health crisis, and so put more you know, focus and interventions and more, uh, more people are paying more attention to it. And I think that that's all going to be a, a positive thing. But I think, um, you know, the most important part of it is this idea that uh, mental health isn't just for some people, that really every single one of us are somewhere along that continuum of mental health and well-being. And you could be in a great place and then you never know what might happen in your life. You lose somebody close to you, you lose a job, uh, you know, you, you hit a spiral, uh, financial crisis, and, and suddenly you could be, you know, really, uh, you know, dealing with a lot of stress and anxiety and different things. So how can we all be more resilient? How can we flourish? And, and I think when you take that approach that mental health and well-being is for everybody, that stigma just melts away because, you know, we're all in it together. And I think that, I think that we have come a long way. And at the same time, when I look at uh, men in general, since we're specifically, you know, that's where we started, um, men are in, globally are in worse shape than they ever have been. Uh, they're graduating from college at much, much smaller numbers. Um, single men are much less likely to own a home than single women. Uh, prisons are filled with mostly men. Um, the suicide rate we talked about already. Um, the loneliest of people out there are men who, uh, you know, can... Uh, barely uh, find maybe one good friend in their life, um, you know. Uh, and so it, it's uh, a time at the, at the same time, you know, there's a lot of social justice movements happening out there. And, you know, a lot of people aren't going to feel sorry for white guys, but it's not just white guys. It's just men in general. But I think, um, you know, I think they, uh, they are uh, particularly, I think, um, suffering right now. They're dying younger and living less healthier lives than women. And so, you know, I think it has a residual negative impact on, you know, friends, families, communities. And so, you know, I think uh, conversely um, with men, you know, being more aware of their emotional, mental, physical, relational health, um, you know, the better I think everybody's going to be. So I think it's still an important and ongoing conversation. Absolutely. Those are very impactful words there. And switching gears a little bit, I want to talk about Grit Digital Health. If you can give our audience kind of a, an overview of the work that goes on at that organization, maybe some of the initiatives that you've stood up since its launch. Yeah, I'm happy to. Because of our work with Man Therapy as an ad agency, like I'm an ad guy, that's what we do, right? We create campaigns. And um, it was a real eye-opener um, around the power of, of using creative branding and, and technology to address behavioral health, it was kind of a, uh, a bit of uh, kind of wet our appetite a little bit, but it all kind of happened very organically. This campaign, Man Therapy, led to so many things. And one of them was a call from my alma mater at Colorado State University. And they had um, a breakout of 17 suicides in a two-year period. Um, and so, you know, we lose about 1,200 college students a year on campuses to suicide. They um, wanted to, you know, uh, look into a potential solution and they knew about my work. So went up and started working with them and formed a really unique public-private partnership. Um, they're a large land-grant um, univers state university in Colorado, about 35,000 students. And um, we really started to delve into the issue and we found that there's a mental health crisis on college campuses that goes well beyond um, just the suicide challenge. And at that point, we knew uh, there was a, a solution out there that could really, I think, 
um, provide some utility and value to students and to higher education. And so at that point in time in 2015, we decided to, to launch a new company, a sister company called Grit Digital Health. And our sole focus would be to create software, um, you know, uh, behavioral health platforms that really help people personalize and manage their own well-being. And we started with college students. And um, after we launched, uh, we developed what we call the U platform, which is a personalized, comprehensive well-being site that really manage, it helps people, you know, set priorities and goals and, and not just deal with issues, but also, you know, uh, really flourish. And uh, uh, it's something that we uh, launched in 2016 as a pilot. It was very well received. So um, we took it to the market. And today we're at about 200 campuses um, across the country with our higher ed solutions. And um, we have since um, also been asked to create a version of our well being platform for veterans. So that platform is called Operation Veteran Strong. Um, we also transcreated it for first responders. Uh, and that platform is called Responder Strong. And uh, these are great national partnerships where we're really uh, taking uh, what we kind of created in the higher ed space and bringing it to, to other markets. So that's what GRIT is focused on, is, is building uh, well-being solutions through technology. It's, it's a very noble effort, too, just having, you know, personally having been on a college campus at the time that this was launched, I can tell you that that was obviously something that was eye-opening to me was just seeing, you know, the mental health crisis uh, facing undergrads across the country and obviously the the suicidal uh, ideation that comes along with it. I'm curious when you look at the advertising and marketing efforts around suicide prevention, around mental health awareness, is there anything that is missing the mark or do you see any room for improvement, not only from your own organization, but maybe from other ones that you see um, out there in the marketplace? I think there's been a lot of really great work. Um, you know, there's, you know, with suicide prevention day, week, month, different populations. Um, there's certainly been more public health uh, funding around it. It's still probably a drop in the bucket. Um, and so there have been some, some really good and interesting efforts. I think there's a lot of organizations pulling in that direction. I think um, what I would love to see more of is um, beyond just kind of like the crisis line. I think the new crisis um, text line uh, 988 is great. I think it's long overdue that we launch that because um, that's kind of serves that crisis purpose. But I think we need more um, tools and solutions that go upstream. And our whole approach is early intervention prevention. The best defense is a good offense. And so that's what really where we're trying to take it. And I think there's room for, for more of us to just promote mental uh, health and well-being and, and the earlier in schools um, and, and the more we normalize that um, and get out in front of it rather than dealing with the acute crisis, um, you know, on the other end. I think that there's a lot more room to run there. And I think also letting people know that everybody has a role to play. You know, we all are in touch with friends and family members, coworkers, and to just, you know, know a little bit more, keep your eye on one another and, uh, that's probably the most powerful thing that we haven't uh, been able to tap into just yet. 
yeah, you talk about that proactivity kind of heading off any sort of acute crisis down the line is always going to be the preferable option. Joe, I've really appreciated you being on the show and obviously sharing your insights on these campaigns and these initiatives that you've been so uh, deeply involved with over the past decade or so. I wanted to kind of shift the focus on the last question to the future. And if you can kind of give us a little bit of a preview of the moonshot for mankind and the work that you're doing in that space. Yeah. Um, so the Moonshot for Mankind is um, a movement that we're launching uh, next week, July 25th to 28th. We're having a series of uh, workshops that are online workshops. And this is just the introduction of this new concept. Um, it grew out of um, a friendship, that, that a newly developed friendship. Uh, this is another one of the ripples from Man Therapy. Um, about a year and a half ago, a gentleman named Jed Diamond reached out to me. Um, and he knew, he just heard about man therapy, uh, even though he was in the field of men's health for the past 55 years, he's a best-selling author. He's dedicated his whole life to men's mental health. And so we obviously really hit it off. And he, he said he wanted to do this moonshot. He had this moonshot idea, didn't know where to take it or what it might mean, but we pulled together, um, seven different individuals who are working in men's health, um, uh, men and women. And we just started meeting once a month, like, like we it was very similar to how man therapy got started. We just started kicking it around. What can we do with this? And I knew that it needed some form and a brand and, and an anthem and a website. Uh, And that's what we do at Cactus. So um, the partners at Cactus all uh, decided it was an important cause. So um, we developed a new logo, a really cool brand. Uh, We made this awesome video that we're just putting the sweetening touches on right now in studio and we're going to launch the website on Monday, just in time uh, to support um, the Moonshot for Mankind um, web conference that's on Tuesday. So moonshotformankind.org or .com, either one will get you to the same place. Uh, and it's basically a place where people can go just learn more about men's health and why it's important to not just men, but also to you know uh, women and children and sisters and mothers and wives and you know ultimately uh, communities in the planet so it's a it's a big hairy audacious goal but it really if we can change this trajectory um, uh, and get men to to live health healthier longer lives it'll do more than curing cancer um, and so it's uh, also focused on a place where people can come and get information become more aware of the issue so they're more knowledgeable and then it's a hub that allows organizations working in men's health to collaborate, leverage one another, and create a network and community that can uh, hopefully uh, you know, pull together and, and be better able to coordinate efforts to kind of advance this idea. So that's, in a nutshell, the moonshot. And um, you know, we, we called it that because uh, we think it's going to take everybody working uh, to you know, really take a swing at, at cracking a very serious challenge. Absolutely. And it sounds very exciting. So I appreciate you you giving us kind of the preview there uh, for what to expect. And obviously, as it as it rolls out in the next few weeks and months, we'll be curious to see the results that it pulls in. But Joe, really appreciate you being on for this very important conversation. Hope we get to revisit it somewhere down the line and wish you the best of luck with your agency and the various initiatives that you have going on. Jack, thank you so much. Really enjoyed the time and uh, the questions were very thoughtful. I appreciate you.
Health Policy Update with Lesha Bouchak. As the lead up to the 2024 presidential campaign begins, healthcare items like drug pricing and abortion will likely surface as major issues for both Republican and Democratic candidates. Drug pricing regulation in particular has continued to sustain a lot of attention from both lawmakers and the public. And support for legislation is becoming increasingly bipartisan, according to the Campaign for Sustainable Rx Pricing, or CSRXP. CSRXP briefed reporters Tuesday on new poll results conducted by Republican Eric Iverson of More Information Group in collaboration with Democrat Celinda Lake of Lake Research Partners. The bottom line of the poll results, 70% of voters across the political spectrum are concerned about drug prices, and one-third of them have trouble affording them. While public concern about high drug prices isn't new, the poll results also revealed that Democratic, Republican, and independent voters widely support passing legislation that would lower prescription drug prices, showing that the issue is indeed bipartisan and will likely translate to the presidential campaign. Lawmakers have introduced two new bills this year that aim to curb prices and improve transparency, the Affordable Prescriptions for Patients Act and the Fair Drug Pricing Act. More than 75% of voters across the political spectrum support the bills, according to the poll. 58% of people polled also said they believe pharma companies are the most responsible for drug prices, compared to only 18% who believe the government is responsible and 4% who believe pharmacy benefit managers are. I'm Lesha Bouchak, senior reporter at m M&M. Social media, Instagram, TikTok, Twitter, YouTube, social media update. And this is the part of the broadcast when we welcome Jack O'Brien to tell us what's trending on healthcare social media. Hey, Jack. Hey there, Mark. Kim Kardashian is no stranger to controversy, and this latest moment of public scrutiny has reignited a long-running healthcare debate. Kardashian recently posted on Instagram a photo of herself next to a full-body scan machine and touted its supposed benefits in identifying serious conditions like cancer and aneurysms early. Quote, I recently did this pre-nouveau scan and had to tell you all about this life-saving machine, Kardashian wrote in the post. The pre-nouveau full-body scan has the ability to detect cancer and diseases such as aneurysms in its earliest stages, even before symptoms arise. She ended, the, she ended with the hashtag, not an ad, and pre-nouveau told BuzzFeed it did not pay Kardashian for any sponsorship or advocacy. As a result of the post seen by her 363 million followers on Instagram, health screening appointments have seen a 13% uptick, according to ZocDoc. Still, Kardashian's claims and the assertions of full-body scan companies like Prenuvo, Ezra, and Nico Health aren't fully backed by physicians. Over the years, medical experts have raised questions about the utility of such scans, pointing out that there's currently no data showing the scans can improve survival or tumor detection. Additionally, a debate raged online in the days following her post, with many users calling Kardashian out for being, quote, tone deaf about the high cost of the scan, which most insurers don't cover, and the lack of access ordinary patients face. Quote, Kim, this is for the wealthy people, one commenter wrote. People can't afford food right now. As the disparities in access and affordability continue to be examined in the healthcare space, companies like Prenuvo have brought in significant capital thanks to Hollywood stars and prominent figures. And I want to throw this over to Lesha because she wrote the story. Obviously, there's a lot of factors that play here. There's the celebrity aspect, which does bring, you know, kind of a, a special spotlight to preventative care, which a lot of healthcare organizations and HCPs have been moving towards in recent years. But there's also the issues around privilege and class and access to care and the affordability angle, too. 
Right. And I mean, I think this kind of just goes to show just how much uh, influence, you know, a celebrity can have when it comes to a healthcare uh, product or campaign, even though she wasn't officially, you know, associated with the campaign or anything. But this is one of the reasons why healthcare marketers try to have celebrities like actors and, and social media influencers, you know, partner with them to get the word out. And ZocDoc did tell me that they have noticed that 13% increase in patients booking uh, preventive health screening appointments since Kardashian posted this. So she definitely has had some influence. But it's also one of those things where uh, a lot of these medical experts are, are saying something kind of the opposite of what Kim Kardashian is saying. Um, they're saying there's really not necessarily much utility behind doing these screenings for the average patient who's asymptomatic and doesn't really have any glaring health problems at the moment. Um, they're also, as mentioned, very expensive. Insurers don't cover these uh, full body scans. And um it's like the word is getting out in a sort of inaccurate way uh, through these influencers. And it's not just Kardashian, because even just a quick search on TikTok has shown that a lot of TikTok influencers are talking about Prenuvo and other full body scans. So the word is definitely getting out among social media influencers, but it's not really matching up to what the medical experts are saying. Yeah, it's that that typical gap that we see between, you know, what a celebrity may be pitching or, you know, what the normal person can afford or should be interested in. Mark, I'm curious, too, because as Lesha pointed out, you know, Prenuvo came out there and said this is not an ad, but Kardashian obviously mentioned them specifically in the post. I, I wonder, you know, where that comes in from a brand perspective. Obviously, they're taking the the good in terms of the uptick in, in interest and booking appointments, but there's also the backlash, too, in terms of cost and the access issue and things of that nature. Mm -hmm. Sure. And uh, as Lesha pointed out, you know, the, the danger um, or the flip side of having, you know, the word get spread by influencers is that it's not always accurate. Well, you know, you can add venture capitalists to that, you know, danger as well, because, um, you know, Pranuvo, which is the company behind this uh, scan that uh, Kardashian took, you know, they just did a, a $70 million raise uh, last fall. Um, they were not the only one that did or did raises last year. Uh, Ezra had one as well. Uh, that was that was uh, more than a year ago. But um, you know, the uh, VC companies been kind of moving into this space. And in the press release for Pernuvo's raise, they pointed out that uh, the federal government's Healthy People survey has shown that preventive health screenings and primary care consultations can significantly increase life expectancy, particularly among the 30 to 49 year age group. Yet only 8% of adults receive appropriate preventive health services each year. I mean, they're talking about health screenings. We're not talking anything about, you know, these full body scans uh, when, when they, you know, toss around those kind of statistics. Um, and the bottom line is that these scans have not been shown to be cost effective, but, uh, as Axios pointed out in an editorial this week, there could be one upside, you know, that if venture capitalists maintain their interest for this technology, um, then we may see the results get proven out, you know, as to whether they are cost effective or not. And um, the uh, cost could start to come down and become subsidized. Um, and so we'll, we could finally know whether this is indeed a useful technology or not uh, for, for the broader population. So I thought that was an interesting take. 
And it's interesting that you talk about the difference there, too, between, you know, people being encouraged to go and do a regular screening or go and get a physical done by their doctor. That's entirely different than getting a full body scan, which somebody like a Kardashian or it was mentioned that Sidney Crawford had invested in one of these companies too, celebrities and Hollywood stars and tech startups that are able to afford the things that, you know, you, me, and I imagine a lot of people in our audience simply aren't able to afford on a regular basis. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, it's uh, right now it's the province of, uh, you know, the venture capitalists, the celebrities, um, and as Axios put it, other wealthy health hackers. But, um, you know, if, if, as long as they keep, you know, doing it, then uh, the cost could be subsidized to the point where there are enough scans to get done to, to really, you know, finally get some, get some good data on this uh, technology. So it's the middle of August, and I figured that we could take a trip to the 2024 presidential campaign trail and see how the most healthcare relevant candidates are doing. Over the weekend, long-shot Democratic presidential hopeful and known anti-vaxxer Robert F. Kennedy Jr. said that, if elected, he would support a national ban on abortion after the first three months of pregnancy. He then walked it back hours later, telling NBC News he, quote, misunderstood repeated questions on the topic. He said, quote, I believe a decision to abort a child should be up to the woman during the first three months of life. Then when he was asked whether or not he supported a ban between 15 to 21 weeks, he answered in the affirmative. Days later, Russian state-owned news agency Sputnik reported that Kennedy claimed the U.S. has established biolaboratories in Ukraine as part of programs involving biological weapons. Of note, at the end of last month, Florida governor and Republican presidential candidate Ron DeSantis announced that, if elected, he would be open to appointing RFK Jr. to a leadership role either at the FDA or the CDC. He said, quote, sick him on the FDA if he'd be willing to serve or sick him on the CDC. In addition to widespread criticism from Democrats, former vice president and fellow GOP presidential hopeful Mike Pence called out DeSantis and said he would not consider Kennedy for any role in his administration. Meanwhile, Republican presidential candidate and former Roy Vant Sciences CEO Vivek Ramaswamy said the indictment of former President Trump delivered by a grand jury in Fulton County, Georgia on Monday night was, quote, politicized persecution through prosecution. This is the fourth legal case in four months in which the former president has been indicted. Ramaswamy, who is running for a spot in the Oval Office against Trump, despite being an ardent defender of him and his policies, has seen a slight rise in polls over the summer. However, a Politico analysis found that his strength comes almost entirely from polls conducted over the Internet. Interestingly, Ramaswamy recently said he supports the decriminalization and eventual legalization of certain hard drugs, adding, quote, I am not a war on drugs person, which is a break with traditional GOP policy. And finally, Ramaswamy also rapped to Eminem's Lose Yourself at the Iowa State Fair. So there's that. That's a lot to take. <laughs> Lesh, you're the, you're the policy reporter. <laughs> yeah, so Lesh, I'm gonna I'm gonna defer to you on both of these points. We have we have rapping presidential hopefuls who were former biotech leaders. We have a known anti-vaxxer who is claiming the U.S. has biological weapons in Ukraine and is flip-flopped on his stance on probably the touchiest political healthcare issue in the country. What's there to unpack? Yeah, I mean, we know that RFK Jr. is is known for making these colorful and questionable, you know, comments and claims, um, you know, probably most popularly his uh, anti-vax sentiments that he's been pushing for a while now. Um, but as you mentioned, you know, he's he's considered a long shot candidate. Um, Ramaswamy has also been listed by Politico as a, a long shot candidate. Um, 
I guess the only uh, potential real uh, influence RFK Jr. could have um, in a situation would be a situation in which DeSantis does uh, position him in a, in a place of uh, political power in the FDA or um, uh, the, the CDC, as he mentioned, um, since DeSantis is considered probably the top contender right now for uh, Republicans next to Trump. Um, but yeah, you know, we'll, we'll have to see what happens there with that. Mark, what's your take on where everything stands? And by everything, I mean everything. <laughs> well, you know, you see candidates at this stage, you know, just trying to do anything to um, kind of differentiate themselves. Um, so it's really like hard to, to put stock um, in what we're hearing, specifically uh, with Ramaswamy. Um, you know, uh, his position on, on drugs, you know, legalizing certain hard drugs, which you point out is a, you know, a break, uh, from the Republicans, uh, traditional, uh, war on drugs stance. Um, and, uh, obviously, um, you know, DeSantis's comments about, uh, you know, appointing RFK, you know, to, to a cabinet position, which, uh, you know, could, um, endear certain portions of the population, uh, but also alienate other portions of the population. Um, so, uh, you know, it's being early days. Um, I'm, I'm going to punt on this one and, and see, you know, uh, when, when, once the, uh, the dust clears a little bit and the 2024 campaign kicks off in earnest, I think we'll see a more, a much more, um, clarified, uh, platform, uh, from, from these candidates. Yeah. I have two points to make here. One being that when we have our podcast and, August of 2024, I I have high doubts that we'll be talking about either of these candidates in any sort of uh, great detail. But I do think it's interesting on both points with RFK Jr. Um, articulating his flip-flopping stance on abortion and Vivek Ramaswamy breaking with the Republicans on the uh, policy as it relates to uh, hard drugs. It is interesting to see just the effects that populism has had in terms of healthcare policy. It's, it's almost seeped into healthcare policy as well. I know that there's been the impact on economic policy and, and how Trump kind of changed the Republican approach towards entitlements and things of that nature. But it seems like it's seeping into how, you know, some of the louder, you could say, fringe candidates on both sides of the aisle are also affecting the healthcare debate too, whether that's saying that we don't want to have the war on drugs from Republicans or even some Democrats coming out there and saying that they are, you know, probably more conservative than they let on about the abortion issue. It's just interesting to see that having some sort of effect if there's anything to read from the situation. Other than the fact that Vivek Ramaswamy is objectively not a good rapper either. <laughs> yes, I think we can all agree on that. Uh, but that's a really good point. I mean, in, in terms of, uh, you know, whoever the, the mainstream um, Republican uh, nominee is, you know, picking and choosing, you know, whatever rises to the surface of, of, of these two potential candidates uh, campaigns, you know, will be interesting to look for. So our last one is something called Girl Dinner which I want our audience to imagine in their minds for a second when I say girl dinner, what comes to mind? It can be anything from random snacks to bowls of pasta. The only requirement is that you're making it for yourself. This is a viral TikTok trend over the past month that has expanded to include more than simple showcases of personal girl dinners. It's opened up a complex discussion around gender roles and disordered eating and what exactly constitutes healthy nutrition. In the girl dinner videos, women show how they eat when they're home alone or without a partner or children to cook for. The dinners are almost always easy to make and they usually consist of hodgepodge of different foods, a little bit of this, a little bit of that. 
For some women, that means lining a plate with carrots, hummus, prosciutto, and blocks of cheese. For others, that may mean whipping up a small bowl of pasta covered in olive oil and Parmesan cheese. Sometimes it's just chicken nuggets, chocolate milk, and a brownie. Girl dinner is a trend that has ventured into darker territory, though, sparking conversations around disordered eating, calorie counting, and the constitution of a truly healthy meal. Some experts believe that girl dinners could trigger individuals with eating disorders, given that these dinners often feature smaller plates and minimal portions. Quote, the girl dinner hashtag is broadened out to encourage girls to pick at their dinners rather than sit down and enjoy a nutrient-dense, well-balanced meal, warned Jenna Hope, a registered nutritionist on Healthline. TikTok users have similarly pushed back against girl dinner videos that encourage calorie cutting or disordered eating, such as the ones that feature nothing more than a few pieces of lettuce or a handful of fries. In other videos, people offer up an empty plate as a girl dinner candidate. TikTok has also stepped in and attempted to cut down on such content. When users type eating disorder or thinspo into the platform search bar, users are directed to a page with the message, you're not alone. It also provides a phone number to the National Alliance for Eating Disorders. That, of course, doesn't take away from the risk that regular hashtags, such as hashtag girl dinners, will trigger some users. On TikTok's safety page for eating disorders, the company urges people to speak with someone they trust, take a break from social media, and attempt to better understand their triggers. Now, Lesha, when we first talked about this story, obviously, I think that's something that you and I are probably most familiar with being on TikTok pretty actively. It did start off as kind of like a ha isn't it funny that somebody's having chicken nuggets and, and hummus for dinner. But there is that kind of deeper layer, as with a lot of these social media stories, into what does it really mean for users and that kind of trickle-down effect. Similarly to a lot of these uh, TikTok trends that we cover, I think it did start out as a bit of a joke and it has sort of expanded to become this bigger argument um, that explores a lot of different areas like gender roles, like women saying, well, this is what dinner would look like if we didn't have to be the main caretakers in a family and cooking for our husbands and in kids. And like, this is the reality of what a woman would eat on her own. Um, to people having arguments about whether it's pushing disordered eating content or, you know, there are some people who are saying that the jokes about, oh, my girl dinner is an empty plate or my girl dinner is like a few pieces of carrots and like a chicken nugget, um, even though maybe to that poster, it's a joke. There's people saying that's actually very harmful. It can kind of... Um, trigger people who, who may suffer from eating disorders. And then there's people who are pushing back against those people and saying, hey, like this really isn't about low calorie count. It was never about that. It's really just about saying like we like to snack and we like to eat random things and we're not always going to be cooking full meals for ourselves the way that we would for our families. Um, so you really will get a whole spectrum of opinions on girl dinner if you if you look into it on TikTok. So it's really interesting to see what it's sort of grown into. Yeah, you talk about that kind of backlash to the backlash in yeah. terms of how it's been talked about online. I did want to point out that one of our colleagues from campaign had pointed out that Popeyes has joined on because brands always seek an opportunity to involve themselves in a social media trend. They had come out there with basically all of their sides listed as a special called girl dinner. So you can't get any of their chicken, but you can get their mashed potatoes, French fries, coleslaw, the whole bit. And it's kind of leaning into what you talk about where it's not saying this is calorie cutting by any stretch, but it's more of like, this is the easy stuff that we're trying to put on a plate. Mark, I want to bring you into the conversation just as it relates to kind of that broader conversation with 
disordered eating and, you know, once again, a social media trend starting one place and kind of veering into another direction. Sure. And um, I was, uh, you know, um, interested to read uh, on Harper's Bazaar as I was just researching a little bit of this, uh, that this is um, one of the many so-called body checking trends that have really plagued social media sites for years um, and just is now kind of coming to TikTok. Um, you know, uh, the magazine points out that back in 2013, there was the thigh gap uh, trend. A decade ago, Tumblr and Instagram became notorious sites uh, for uh, glamorizing anorexia and disordered eating. And uh, as they point out, history just kind of repeating itself with these old trends kind of resurfacing to a fresher and naive audience on TikTok. Um, so, but I think that, um, you know, they're, I, I'm right, you know, to, um, you know, sort of uh, take a close look at, at this girl dinner's trend and using their content moderation assertiveness to direct people to uh, a phone number, you know, and, and provide some support for people. Uh, because I think as, as Lesh, as you point out, um, some of these videos, while they're humorous, you know, we have to consider the fact that they're using kind of sly humor to kind of mask their, their true intentions, which is, you know, it could be some, somebody kind of calling out for help or, um, or, or whatnot. And, um, and then obviously the, the other side of it is that these, these videos could trigger people and has to, you have to kind of take that seriously. So yes, that's that's my two cents. I definitely agree with that, Mark. And just want to point out as well that TikTok does have like, um, a dedicated page, about their policy on eating disorder and, and suicide and self-harm and those kinds of things. So if you're searching specific, you know, terms related to eating disorders, you're going to be automatically directed to a page where you're um, given a phone number and, you know, support. Um, but the girl dinner hashtag kind of falls into this gray zone where it's not really content that's going to be banned or um, necessarily moderated on TikTok. Um, and it, I think we've talked about this in the past as well with a lot of these trends that fall into this gray zone where TikTok really doesn't have um, set, I guess, monitoring or regulation in place for that those gray zone areas. Um, so right now, content that can trigger people but isn't blatantly espousing an eating disorder is kind of getting away with, you know, being out there. So. Yeah, it's a tough spot for them to be in because obviously I think they're trying to do right by uh, you know, realizing the risks of having such a young audience and having such an algorithm based model that you have to step in there and have some sort of safeguards. But then again, how do you approach something like the flying fairy trend? How do you approach something like girl dinners, which is, you know, ostensibly about one thing, but always carries the risk for something else. And it may be easier for us. You know, I'm, I'm 28 years old. I know that when I see girl dinner, it's like, oh, that's kind of, we're leaning into a joke and that's what it is. But if you're a 13 year old girl and you're having issues with your weight or it doesn't even have to be about age. If you've ever suffered with anything related mm -hmm. to eating disorders, that can always be a trigger and always something that will affect your self-esteem and mental health. So there's a lot of factors to consider in that. In addition to it just being, you know, yet again, another viral meme that goes crazy online and has so many repercussions for users and brands all across the board. Yeah, right. And obviously, I'm not in the TikTok uh, demographic, uh, being a 50-something-year-old guy. But, um, you know, uh, tonally, uh, it's it's very, um, as Harper's again points out, it's very Gen Z, you know, to kind of mask, you know, what you're really saying in, in irony and sly humor. Uh, so... Uh, it's uh, something that uh, they have to keep their eye on um, and uh, something to be taken, taken seriously. Uh, so hashtag, you know, body checking and thin spo 
uh, or girl dinners um, will be things that uh, I'm sure uh, TikTok will be uh, you know monitoring carefully. That's it for this week. The MMM podcast is produced by Bill Fitzpatrick, Gordon Failer, Lesha Bushak, and Jack O'Brien. Our theme music is by Sizzy M. Sohn. Rate, review, and follow every episode wherever you listen to podcasts. New episodes out every week. And be sure to check out our website, mmm-online.com, for the top news stories in pharma marketing. <laughs>